I'd like to introduce you to two people this morning that are very special to Jenny and I and uh, the whole Herbert side of the family. So everybody on Jenny's side of the family have loved Aunt Moo and Uncle Paul. Aunt Moo and Uncle Paul are Jenny's great aunt and uncle. Her name is not actually Moo. Her name is Marilyn, but Jenny and Julie could not say, they couldn't say Marilyn. So it was Aunt Moo. They live on Islesboro, or they did. Uncle Paul's passed away. But Aunt Moo still lives there. I think she's in her early 90s. I forget now. She just keeps going and going and going and going. She chops her own firewood. She grows her own vegetables. She's a quilter. She just keeps, and she lives on an island. So it's not like you can just easily get to the grocery store real quick. You got to get on the ferry and there's, go, there's a whole process. So they just keep going and going. But for years and years and years, they were caretakers for the summer homes that are there on Islesboro. There's a lot of summer people that come over. They enjoy the island. It is absolutely beautiful. Jenny and I and the girls only get over there for a week out of the year. Um, and it's a glorious week. They have people that come over and they take care of these huge mansions for these summer people that would come. So they are stewards, caretakers of those homes. It might mean that they had to mow the lawn, they had to trim the bushes, plant the flowers, go in and vacuum or make beds or clean bathrooms, whatever it might be, they were taking care of these homes because the people who owned the homes had entrusted those homes to them. It wasn't their home. They didn't get to sit on the couch and watch TV. They didn't get to go in and just find, hey, what's in the fridge and go see what they're gonna eat. This wasn't their house. This wasn't their stuff. They were caretakers of it. They had to do a good job. Even if those owners were only there a week out of the summer or a couple of months out of the year, they were stewards. They took care of it. They knew it wasn't theirs. In the same way, as we come to this passage, we see Paul as a caretaker and a steward of what God has given him. And we're really going to take a look at this, and we're going to do our best to fit in the time frame that we need to. We're going to take a look at this in two sections. So there's really two parts that we're going to see this morning. So we start in verse 24 and go through the end of the chapter, but then we're also going to look at chapter 2, 1 through 5. And we're going to look at Paul's ministry as a steward, as a pastor, a shepherd of the flock that God has given him. But we're going to take a look at it in two ways. So we're going to see it globally, his globally, obviously not worldwide, but his globally, his part of the world that God had entrusted him with to take care of those churches that were there, but also what that looks like locally. So he addresses, or it can be applied to, really the global church in his area that he worked within, but then specifically, very specific things for that Colossian church and then Laodicea. We'll see that church then in just a moment as well. So let's take a look first, and we're going to read 24 through 29. We're going to read that passage as we talk about his church ministry globally, his stewardship globally, and then we'll take a look in the next section at chapter 2, 1 through 5, and we'll read that passage at that point. But if you have it open with you, let's take a look at Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is a stewardship that God has given Paul. It's given it to him, and Paul, right from, as we look at this, the first thing we've got to remember, he knows he can't do this on his own. He knows he needs God's energy powerfully working through him because Paul has a really big job. He is responsible for a huge area, and as a pastor, your heart goes out to that huge area that you're responsible to cover. So he traveled extensively. So we can see here on this map, I know it's a little small up there, but I imagine your Bible has its own little maps there in the back. This is okay. You know, as a kid, I always went through and flipped through and looked at those maps rather than really following along. It's okay to look at the maps at this point. It's all right. Those are some of Paul's travels. They may be hard to see all those different points where he went, but you can get the idea. He traveled extensively. And he made friends everywhere that he went. Every place that he went, he was making friends, he was making connections, he had ministry partners that then followed him throughout the rest of his ministry as well. And when he was in prison, he relied on those ministry partners to be able to take the letters that he wrote and take that to the churches that he intended them to go to. Might have been a very specific church like Colossae, might have been to a region that he was sending it to and the churches within that region. But he relied on those connections that were made then to be able to get that information to those churches. But a big area, a broad area, he would have had to travel slowly most of the time. I mean, the quickest thing he probably would have had was a horse or a ship, depending on which way the wind was blowing. But it would have been slow travel, would have been difficult travel, would have been dangerous travel. And on top of all of that, he's got that weight on him of these are the churches that God has called me to minister to. Knowing full well, this is a big responsibility and it's impossible to get to everybody when you want to, in the time frame you're hoping to, and then get to everyone as often as you're wanting to. And having worked in CEF, I understand just a little bit of what Paul might have been feeling because I had a region that I covered as a local director for CEF of Southern Maine. I had five counties that I covered. Within those five counties, I could have started my day in Kittery in the morning for a meeting and then ended up all the way up in Waldeboro in the afternoon for another meeting. I could be in Cornish for a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday service and then be the next morning I would have to be over in Bath to talk to Pastor Jay about getting Vacation Bible School set up at Corliss Street Baptist Church. Uh, I could be on Monhegan. How many of you ever been out to Monhegan? Okay, a couple of people have been to Monhegan. That was part of my area. You can only get there by a boat or a helicopter. But most of us don't have a helicopter or a boat that can get out there. So you got to take the ferry for an hour and a half to get out to Monhegan. That was part of my area. They had people who needed Christ. They had a one-room schoolhouse, kids that needed to hear Jesus. So that was part of my area, huge area. I had over 55% of the population within those five counties that I covered that I was responsible to help the churches of that area reach, helping them reach kids with the gospel. That's a lot of people. I could be working with very traditional main communities in the morning, those that haven't changed in generations and look very similar to what grandparents and great-grandparents served in. The church didn't change at all. It's the same thing, same curtains, same carpet, everything. And then the afternoon, I might go work with Pastor Rudy within one of the African churches in North Deering huge range of people. It might be uh, 
Americans who have been here for forever or Americans that are just brand new to the country. Broad range of people to work with. So understand a little bit maybe of what Paul was thinking here. Huge area, huge church. He felt the struggle to be able to accomplish all that God had for him. But he also knew where that energy came from. It was God working in him, his energy powerfully working through him. And he needed God's energy to powerfully work within him because there was so much work to be done, so much that needed to be accomplished. And it wasn't easy work. This is heavy work, toilsome work, agonizing work, not just from the physical perspective. He had a lot of travel to do, and he was getting older as he's going through all these different journeys. He's getting older and older, and the travel, I imagine, was getting harder and harder. But he also had that mental and emotional and spiritual struggle that agony that he dealt with all the way through these travels. He needed God's energy working through him. Same thing for Mark and I. As we go through this work and we lead this church, we don't do that in a vacuum. We don't just lock ourselves away in our office and forget about everybody. Sometimes we need to lock ourselves away in the office so I can get, you know, working on my sermon this week. I had to close my door. There's a few times, most of the time with Lynn there in the office and Ann and, and Mark, I don't close my door. I like to be able to talk to people. This week I closed my door so I could work on my sermon. But even when we're closed away in our offices, we're still thinking of each of you. You're still on our hearts. You're still on our minds. I know Mark and Sarah have been on vacation this week, and I hope they were able to totally disconnect for a bit and refresh and refill. But I know that you are on their hearts and their minds throughout this week, even on vacation. Paul couldn't detach from that. He needed God's energy working in him, working through him. And he had that church, that flock on his mind, never forgotten, all its joys, its cares, its sorrows. And he suffered joyfully. He had a joyful suffering. All right, so he had a joyful suffering. What does that mean? How can you suffer joyfully? What does that look like to suffer joyfully? You don't suffer joyfully just for suffering's sake. It takes a pretty special person just to suffer for suffering's sake. You can suffer joyfully, though, when you know what it is that you are suffering Four. And Paul knew that through his suffering, he was filling up in Christ what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. He was suffering on behalf of the churches, on behalf of Christ, he was suffering for their sake. Now, what he's not saying here, which it sounds like, and when I was doing this study, I knew somebody else, somebody else had told me, like, oh, there's some controversial stuff in this one you get to deal with. This is one of those things. If you read this incorrectly, it sounds like what Paul is doing is taking the sacrifice of Christ and trying to add to it. That's not what he's referring to here. He's not referring to the atoning work of Christ. That's something that as I was looking through this passage, seeking to better understand it, all the commentators say the same thing. Paul's not talking about the atoning work of Christ. That's done. That is done once for all. He paid that Price. When he was there on that cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He did it. There's nothing else to be added to it. There's nothing else to fill up within it. It's done. He paid that price totally and completely. Here's what Hebrews 10, 12 and 14 say. Say, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He did it. He paid for it. There's nothing else to be added 
to it. He paid the price. He is the one paid for a single sacrifice. He sat down. You don't sit down until your work is done. Um, we, Jenny's uh, step-grandfather, Bob Bell. Some of you know Bob Bell. He always said, if you got your hands in your pocket, you, you know, you got to be doing something else. He said, you know, if you're not, if you don't have your hands out doing something, your hands are in your pocket, you need to pick up a job and do something. Same thing with sitting down. You don't sit down till your work is done. So for a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. The work was done. For a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is nothing that Paul can do to add to the work of Christ. There's nothing that we can do to add to the work of Christ. So what is Paul talking about here where he says he's filling up the afflictions of Christ? What is he talking about? What he may have in mind is that Jesus suffered. He was afflicted every single day as he's looking out and he's seeing people. A world that he knew exactly what it looked like when it was created. The perfect world. A totally holy, nothing wrong, absolutely spotless world when he created it and then sin corrupted it. He was the one who spoke and it came into being. And now he's walking in this world in human flesh, Jesus here on earth, seeing somebody afflicted with leprosy. Cast out of their home, out of their community. He sees a little girl who's dead and her family crying, mourning after her because she's dead. He sees somebody who's blind. He's sitting there by the road. Bartimaeus can't see, calling out for Jesus because he knows Jesus is his only hope. Jesus is no wonder he's called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Perhaps this is some of what Paul is talking about when he thinks of Christ's afflictions. What was Christ seeing every single day? A world in need of their Savior. And he was their Savior, and most of them didn't get it. Most of them didn't understand. Now here's Paul stepping into this church that God has given him, this church globally. He's got churches locally, but he's got this church globally. And he's feeling those same struggles. He's feeling those same pains. He's seeing those same people that need a Savior. Perhaps this is what he has in mind. People that are dying in their sins without Christ. People that need Jesus that offer of salvation, so extravagantly bought, but so freely given, available to everyone. And there's Paul seeing this happening every day within the churches that God has called him to, or as he's locked away in prison, remembering all those relationships that he's made, all those people that he's seen, whether it was the scholars that he was speaking to in Athens or it was those quiet little communities in those little churches way back in the middle of nowhere. He's remembering those people, and perhaps that's what he's feeling. There is some disagreement on some of that. Some scholars think that maybe what Paul is saying here is that he's filling up the afflictions that Christ has for him, that there was a certain amount of affliction that, that Christ was giving to him, that Paul knew he needed to fill up those things for the sake of Christ. Christ suffered so much for him. It's the least he could do to suffer for Christ. Nothing he could do to add to that. But he's remembering the sufferings of Christ that are incomparable with the sufferings that he has on behalf of the church. But he's suffering for them. He suffers for them joyfully. The only way he can suffer for them joyfully is because he knows what the suffering is for. He knows the purpose of the struggle. 
And there is a purpose for the struggle. He suffers as God's minister. He suffers as a pastor, as a steward. So what is that task or the stewardship that God has given him? He says that the word of God may be fully known. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. And this is the task of every single pastor. To make the word of God fully known. No hiding it. No secrets. Not keeping any parts back so that there's a cliffhanger for, for next Sunday. We're not holding anything back. Letting the word of God be known, letting the word of God be seen, that we might know him and make him known. This is the opposite of what the Gnostics would have been teaching. Again, those false uh, teachers that were trying to sneak into the church, they're trying to teach that there is hidden knowledge out there somewhere. You've got to be enlightened to be able to get that hidden knowledge. You've got to go after that hidden knowledge and all these hoops you've got to jump through to be able to get there. Paul's not having any of that. That's his responsibility that God has given him, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery that was hidden for ages and generations that's now been revealed to the saints. It's not hidden anymore. He's given us his word that we might know him, make him known. And it was hidden for a time. There was a time where God was revealing piece by piece what he was going to do. All through the Old Testament, we get glimpses and pictures of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. But it's pieces, bit by bit by bit. And all of those people who were looking back, who had spiritual eyes open and letting God work in them, could see those pieces coming together through those Old Testament prophecies. Finally, every single prophecy was met in Jesus. The revealing of that mystery that, that was happening that we couldn't see before. All of those were fulfilled in Christ. So what is that mystery? What is the mystery that Paul is talking about? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That just gives me chills every time I read that, every time I think about that. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's absolutely incredible to think about that. And here's your homework. I homework last week. I'm going to give you homework again this week. I want you to go home and I want you to read again Colossians 1, 15 through 20 and John 1, 1 through 18. We already looked at both of those, but if we went through both of those again, it would be a whole other sermon and we'd never get to the end of this one. Go back and read those and understand again, who is this Jesus? Christ in you. Look at everything that's there. Christ in you. And how incredible is that? And if that doesn't just get you going, I don't know what does. Christ in you. It's, it's amazing. It's mind-blowing. Christ in you. That mystery finally revealed. And can you imagine angels? What were angels thinking as they're watching this process unfolding? I mean, we can't, we can't know exactly what they were thinking, but I can imagine. Like, they're looking down saying, he's doing what? Why would he be doing that? Watching on, seeing this plan that God is revealing. And then here's Paul. Who's Paul talking to as he's saying, Christ in you, the hope of glory? He's talking to a primarily Gentile church. That's incredible. That would have been, for, for us, having the, the entirety of Scripture to be able to look back on and the Holy Spirit working within us to be able to process this information, we can see it and it's mind-blowing for them, for Gentiles 
who were excluded from the temple by the character and nature of who they were as Gentiles, they could not enter the presence of God there at the temple in Jerusalem. As sinners, they were alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. Now they've accepted Christ. Now they are holy and blameless and above reproach. And not only are they holy, blameless, and above reproach, not only have they been brought near as a sacrifice, a pure sacrifice offered to God, but Christ is in them. That's crazy. That's amazing. Christ in them. All through the Old Testament, God says, I will be with them. I will be their God, and I will be with them. Who in the Old Testament would have ever pictured this? Christ in you. I will be with them. That's it's not what they imagined, I'm sure. They were imagining the temple. God with them. Not God with them. I'm hitting my microphone. God with them, in them. That's amazing. That's absolutely incredible. And that's something that you can hold on to. He's writing this to the churches globally. He's thinking of the Colossian church, but it's to the churches globally. But this is for you. Christ in you the hope of glory. You were alienated. You were hostile. You were doing evil deeds. But last week we saw that you are holy, blameless, above reproach. Christ in you. That's your reality. That's their reality. It's this mystery that was revealed. And this is the mystery that Paul went along with him, those that are teaching with him are proclaiming that he's made known to the saints, not hidden that only the spiritual elites can access, not hidden away as the Gnostics were teaching, but made known to his saints, that ramshackle group of believers. They were sinners, now they're redeemed. The rich, the poor, the wealthy, the, the, uh, those who were somebody's in town, those who were nobody's in town, those who were the educated, the uneducated, whoever they were, they were the saints. In God's eyes, they were the saints now revealed to them, not hidden away for the spiritual elite. All part of God's family because of the atoning work of the Son so gladly received. Paul and those with him proclaim Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone. And Paul's very careful with the words that he uses here, saying teaching everyone, warning everyone. This is in sharp contrast, again, with what the Colossians and many of the other churches within his global area were experiencing. That there were those elite groups, whether it was the Gnostics or it was the, the Pharisees or whichever group it was, there was this elite group that you had to subscribe to their group, do their things, jump through their hoops to be part of this group to be able to understand who God is and what he's done. Paul's saying this message is for everyone, everywhere. This is for them. That's a sharp contrast from what they were seeing, what the Colossian church was seeing all around them. And he says they're doing it in all wisdom or with all wisdom. And this is talking about how they're bringing that message to these people. These are new believers. These are young Christians. Yes, they want to know the mysteries and the depths of who God is, but Paul is wise and those with him are wise in how they're presenting this information to these churches. They're not just going to open up the fire hose of the mysteries of God and just blow them away so they can't grasp it. 
Paul comes in and he's bringing the word and in other places it talks about the word as that milk that newborn babies need. Eventually you grow through that and you go on to meat, but you got to start slow. So he's coming at them with all wisdom and how he's presenting God's word to them so they can grasp it. So God's Holy Spirit can work in them and work through them and those cold, stony hearts that were replaced with hearts of flesh are now being able to beat and be able to feel God working in them, his Holy Spirit revealing to them the truth of the word that Paul is bringing to them and putting together the pieces of maybe of what they had heard from the Old Testament in the past. But Paul is coming to him, coming to them and those with him, coming with all wisdom. They're careful about how they're bringing that to this people, that they might present them mature in Christ. No longer newborn infants, no longer needing so much care, no longer able to stand up on their own two feet, no longer unable to defend themselves, but mature in Christ, mature in their faith. And that's the call of every pastor, is to be able to preach the word, to do that faithfully, be able to preach that word so it's understood, so you can know God and make him known, but also to present everyone mature in Christ. That's Mark and I's desire for each of you. We love each of you just as you are, but we don't want to see you stay this way. We want to see you growing. We want you to be coming more like Christ. The things you think, the things you say, the things you do. Michael remembers this from Good News Club. We talked about this all the time. And the things you think, things you say, the things you do. But most importantly, who you are. Because you can think, say, and do the right things, but at your core, be somebody else. Be a lie. You're just doing the right things on the outside. But who you are, who you really are, the you on the inside that nobody else sees when you're just by yourself, we want you to be becoming more like Christ mature. That's Paul's desire for his churches globally. It's his desire for the church locally, for Mark and I, for each of the elders. That is our desire for this church, that you be mature. I got to catch up with where I am. I'm losing where I am in my notes. One of the things that I've had the joy of being able to do with having three little girls is being able to see each of them grow up and reach different stages of maturity. So seeing Evie, you know, Brandon, parents, we don't know what we're doing, but we're watching, doing our best to take care of her, and Ada, maybe a little bit more, and now seeing Laurel grow up and being able to recognize, oh yeah, Ada did that, and oh, Evie did that too. Um, right now, she's starting to walk, holding on to furniture and, and us trying to stand up and to move on her own. Uh, before that, she's just scooting everywhere. If you've seen Laurel at all scooting through church, she just she sits and she just scoots, pushes herself along. Going to miss that when she finally is able to walk. Not only will it be harder to keep track of her, but it, I'm going to miss that. Uh, same thing with her talking. She can babble, and we understand some of her words, and sometimes she doesn't stop talking. I was working on this yesterday, and she had woken up from her nap, and I'm holding her, and she's just talk, 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 while I'm trying to talk through this. So she just talks and talks and talks. And someday I'll be able to understand more clearly exactly what it is that she's saying. And I'm going to miss that baby babble because I missed that, that stage in her life. It'll be good to understand what she's saying, but I'm going to miss that point too. What I won't miss is diapers. I am not going to miss diapers. I am going to be so excited when there are no more diapers, no more pull-ups, none of that left in the house, that they are mature. They are growing. They are moving on to a new stage in their lives. 
Paul's thinking the same, not diapers, but he's thinking maturity, growing up, maturing, not staying where you were, mature in Christ, not staying locked in that infancy of your faith, that childhood of your faith, but being presented to Christ, mature, growing. Same thing for Mark and I. We want to see you maturing, growing in your faith, maturity found in Christ through his spirit and his word and applied to daily living. And this is hard work. Paul suffered for it. He's toiled for it. But he knows he's not toiling alone. It's not by himself. It's got God's energy again, powerfully working in him, working in him, working through him. And when God gives you a task, he gives you a stewardship, gives you a responsibility, he always gives you what you need to accomplish that. Because on your own, you can't do it. If God's given you a responsibility, there's no way that you can do that responsibility that he's given you without his help. It's always how he intends it to be. You never have enough just within yourself. Never enough that you drag up from within yourself to accomplish what God has for you. He always intends that you must rely on him to be able to accomplish the work he's given you to do. He promises to always give you what you need, but you'll never have it just in yourself. Paul knows he needs God's working within him, his energy. Same thing for each of us, whether that's his energy working through us to forgive somebody we don't want to forgive, to see our marriage improve in a way that is God-honoring, to be able to stand up here and just speak and share God's word with each of you. We need God's energy working in us and through us to accomplish his will because it's too big for us to do all on our own. It's too hard for us to accomplish without his energy working through us. And so far what we've been seeing, this can be applied to any church that Paul has that opportunity to lead, to be a shepherd of that flock. This can be applied to any, any church, any church globally. But how about locally? Let's go ahead and look at chapter 2. One through five, and speed up the pace, I think, so we can get this accomplished. All right, chapter two, verse one. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul's never been to Colossae. Never been there. He's heard a lot about them, but he's never actually been there. He mentions Laodicea as well. That's another church that's not so far away, which probably would have been suffering very similar things to what Colossae was, very similar uh, culture that they would have been in very similar uh, scholars and the teachers and all, just all the different scenarios that Colossae's dealing with, Laodicea probably would have been similar. He's never seen them. They have never, never seen him, but he's struggling for them. He's struggling. He's agonizing for them. And that's the word that's being used here when he talks about the struggle, suffering for them. That's where we get our word agonize. And that's often associated in some way with an athletic suffering or struggling or suffering, agonizing. So on Friday, I got to go out for a bike ride. Friday's uh, usually my day off. I got to go out and go for a good long bike ride. 
but the wind was crazy. It has been for the last couple of days. So for the first half of my ride, I was agonizing against the wind. And then the ride back was supposed to be a tailwind, and it didn't necessarily feel like a tailwind the whole time. I'm agonizing. Paul is agonizing for the churches. He's not just sitting back drinking coffee, saying, I hope they're okay out there. He's agonizing for these churches. So what is he doing? He's, he can't actually go to them. So he's agonizing for them, can't, can't take the guard that he's chained to with him to go to Colossae. So how is he agonizing for them? He's agonizing in prayer. The only thing he can do, but it's not, we say the only thing he can do. He can pray. And often, that's what I needed to do as I, again, think about the work I did with CEF. It was so broad, and I knew so many people in so many different places. It was impossible to get to everybody as I really wanted to. I couldn't be up there with Kristen in Waldeboro talking about how do we reach this area with the gospel and a good news club, and also be down with Emily in Kittery Point to talk about VBS for the summer. I couldn't make it up always to see Paul in Bridgeton to be able to talk about reaching kids for Christ there in the Bridgeton area, or encouraged Jay in Bath and the hard work he was doing there, or with Pastor Rudy with the immigrant community here in the greater Portland area. But I could pray for those people. Often it was while I was driving. I had a lot of driving that I did, having to go from one place to another all across my chapter. But I often had meetings up in the Bangor area or in Augusta. So I'd get on 95 and just drive and pray. A lot of praying happened while I was driving. Or it happens when I ride. Sometimes I'm riding and I'm agonizing and all I can think of is I want to stop. Sometimes I'm riding along and that's often when my best praying happens. God brings people back to my mind. Or he brings something to my mind that I think, Lord, help me to remember that when I get back so I can write that down because that was good. So I'm praying. You might think, well, it's just praying. But Paul's agonizing in his praying. You think, well, that's all I can do. But he's struggling for them with a great exertion, yet totally unseen. They've never seen him. He's never seen them. But he's exerting energy, exhaustion, agonizing for them. And that's the heart of a pastor, agonizing over people. He's never met them. But those people, that flock has been entrusted to him by God. And God's not only given him that flock to care for, but he's also given him the heart to care for those people. And that's what God does. When he calls you to reach a certain people, to reach a certain group, to go serve in a specific ministry, if God's called you to it, he's going to give you the energy to do it. He's also going to give you the heart to do it. He's going to give you the heart to do that. And he knows this is God's flock. He's serving as a steward. And he better take good care of that flock because this is God's flock. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Peter understood this. Paul understood this. These aren't his sheep. Yes, they're his sheep as they have been given to him by God to care for. But they're God's sheep. It's his flock. And he better take good care of that flock. And he's agonizing for them in prayer because he can't go be with them. So he's praying for them. And what is he praying for them? He's praying that they're encouraged, knit together in love. And why is he praying for these things? Well, I'm imagining 
and I could go back, and I'm sure Pastor Dave would know exactly which books I should look at to go back and find a greater context of the culture and all of that. But as, as I'm imagining this Colossian church, these believers left a lot behind when they accepted Christ as their Savior. Perhaps they left their family. Perhaps they left their careers, their friends, their culture. When they accepted Christ, they left a lot behind them. And they were, the church that they were a part of, were all they had. And I got to do a little bit of work when I was at Lancaster Bible College within the Muslim community. And I got to do that work with someone who had previously been Amish. And that was a very interesting uh, connection for him having been Amish to work within the Muslim community because they were very similar in a lot of ways. He got saved because he went to a Bible study that he wasn't supposed to go to. He wasn't encouraged to read his Bible on his own in connection with a Bible study. He was able to go to church and Bible studies that were sanctioned by the Amish community and the elders that were leading those, but he wasn't encouraged to read on his own. And when he started to read and go to that Bible study, he realized that he was missing something in what the elders were sharing, and he accepted Christ. As a result of accepting Christ, he was kicked out of his community. No longer seeing his friends, no longer seeing his family. Totally excommunicated from the whole group, from the whole Amish community. So through that experience, he was then able to come alongside those who were Muslim and able to share conversations of who Jesus was with them. And when God gave his leading and his guiding and they accepted Christ as their savior, he was able to sympathize with them because he had a very similar background because they would be excommunicated from their family. They would lose their friends. They would lose their family. They might lose their career. He could understand from where God had brought him from. So Paul is praying for them that they might be encouraged and knit together in love because that group, that church, might be all they had for family. He's also praying for them that they might continue to grow and be mature, just like he's praying for those other churches, that they strive to be mature, um, that they'll understand the riches of the full assurance of the mystery, which is Christ in them, and see the treasures, the hidden treasures of the wisdom and knowledge. So that full assurance of Christ in them. I'm sure you can remember that moment for yourself when you trusted in Christ as your Savior. And then that moment of the full assurance of what that means hits you. He's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me. Even if I mess up, he's never going to leave me. He's never going to forsake me because he's going to remain faithful, even if I am faithless. That assurance that he's doing just exactly what he says he is doing. He's done just exactly what he said he did. That full assurance of Christ in them. And knowing that... The treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. Not a hidden knowledge like what the Gnostics were talking about, but knowing that true wisdom, true knowledge are found in Christ. He offers so freely to us. That's what Paul is praying for this church. So add that, what he's praying here, to what he also was praying for the church. And again, you're going to have to go back and do some more of your own homework on this in chapter 1, 9 through 12. So there's another list of things that he's praying for the church, and that is an absolutely incredible list to be praying for this church. So go back and look at that. Why do you pray for the people that you pray for and pray for the things that you pray for for them? It's because you know a little bit about them and what they need. 
Paul knows these are things that they're going to need. He's very purposeful then in his praying, and he's purposeful in his warning for this church. He realized and he knew that there's war all around them. There are wolves that are trying to get in to get to the sheep. Those wolves are trying to sneak in. Those false teachers, those Gnostic scholars, they're trying to creep into the midst of the church and lead them away with plausible arguments, whether it's adding to the gospel, discrediting the gospel. They're trying to sneak in and lead that church astray. And remember who the Gnostics were. So we've talked a little bit about them over the last few sermons. They were the spiritual elites, always striving for more and more knowledge, that deeper understanding through enlightenment of who God was. But it's always, it's always jump through this hoop, go through this, do this, it, always striving. And in that era, in that, that part of the world, um, Debate and rhetoric was, was very common and very popular, especially during, uh, among the elites, the spiritual elites, the educated. And I'm so glad we've moved away from that sort of thing in our society today, arguments and rhetoric and all of that. Of course not. We're still doing the same thing that they were doing. They were excellent at making the pitch. If you know what I mean by the pitch, it's making something look really, really good that you're trying to sell. They were excellent at doing that, those plausible arguments. They were making a pitch. I worked with somebody for a little while who worked in the corporate world who was really good at making the pitch. He was in, in advertising and was really good at his job. And there were at times we'd realize he's making a pitch to me over here and making a pitch to somebody else over here, and it doesn't quite line, he's trying to reach this goal, it doesn't quite line up with what he says here, with what he says over here, but he's making the pitch to try to get you to do something you're not quite comfortable with. That's what's happening here with Paul as he's addressing these Gnostic scholars and the other false teachers, they're making that pitch they're trying to move the Colossians and the Laodicean church. They're trying to move them away with plausible arguments. Paul says, watch out for those plausible arguments. They look good. They might make sense in a lot of ways. But that's often what Satan's best lies are, is mostly truth. It's mostly truth. Satan's not going to lead you away with something that you just know is wrong. Okay, I know that's wrong. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. That, would be, that, that wouldn't work. You just know, you know better than that. But if it's mostly truth, and you're only compromising in this little tiny area, it's a plausible argument. It makes sense. That's a much greater, that's a much stronger temptation. It's much easier for those wolves to sneak in and take out the church. So Paul is being very careful to warn them of what's coming. Now, we may not be fighting the Pharisees and Gnostics of Paul's day, but pastors today, Mark and I, we're still fighting the same kinds of battles that Paul was. We need to protect the flock. There are those who would sneak in and try to lead the church astray. Those that are very well-meaning people often sneak in and try to lead the church astray. Again, Satan's best lies are mostly truth. So Mark and I have to be very careful as we're trying to lead you as a church that we do that well. We're being careful. We're being cautious. We're watching out because we want to present you mature in Christ. Paul was being careful. He was warning them of what was coming. The wolves were hungry and the sheep looked tasty, but nobody was pulling the wool over their eyes. Paul couldn't be with them physically, but he's with them in spirit. He's striving with them uh, in prayer, earnestly, 
every single day. And sometimes that's all you can do is just pray for people. Strive earnestly in prayer and let God do the work. Paul couldn't be with them. Maybe you can't be with somebody that you're thinking of that you pray for regularly. But God does the work. Sometimes he changes the circumstances. Most often he changes us. And then we're able to see things from God's perspective and not just our perspective. But pray. Let God work in you and through you and pray earnestly. And Paul was encouraged to hear of their their firmness of faith, standing steadfast in their faith in Christ. And when those words are used, those terms, good order and firmness of your faith in Christ, those are military terms. It's like it's a front line. You've got a front line, you're holding that front line, and you're not wavering. They were standing firm in their faith in Christ. Last week we talked about stable and steadfast being that architectural term, like you've got an earthquake-proof foundation. That's how these Colossians are standing. They're standing firm in their faith, firm in Christ, on that solid rock. It is earthquake-proof, and it's going to hold that front line. Paul's encouraged to hear of that happening in their lives. Paul was a pastor. Paul had a heart for all those churches. The churches globally, he had a heart for those churches locally, suffering for them. And it wasn't a job that he chose. You don't choose to be a pastor. It's a job that God gives you, a calling that he gives you. And you can either accept the calling and know it's going to be hard, but he's going to give you everything you need to accomplish it. Or you can be like Jonah and run away from that call and have a really bad day. But you don't just choose it. You don't just say, I think I'll be a pastor. Maybe I'll be a plumber. No, I think I'll be a pastor. It's, it, you can't just choose it. It's got to be a call from God in your life. It has to be a call. Otherwise, it won't work. You have to go in his strength. Paul had a call on his life. He was a steward, a steward of God's. He was a shepherd taking care of God's flock globally, part, part of his world, his global, but also locally. He was a shepherd. And I'm excited to go through the rest of the book of Colossians with you to be able to see how does God continue to lead him to shepherd that flock that God has given him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the example of you working in and through Paul. Just an incredible transformation in Paul's life to see then where you brought him to then for him to be able to bring up and lead spiritually those others that maybe had a similar background to he did, uh, that he did. Those that then can mature in their faith and learn to be shepherds as well as, as the, the call that you gave him, as we think of Timothy and Titus. And Father, it's, in, it's, it's fun to read back on these letters intended for a specific group, but it's your word to us that we can learn from and we can grow through. So we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name.